Yes, we're going through the Old Testament, and our, our method in through the Bible is an Old Testament book, a New Testament book, an Old Testament book, a New Testament book, systematically through the Scriptures to give it variety. So after Deuteronomy comes Acts, after Acts comes Joshua, after Joshua comes Romans, and so forth. We do believe in all of the Bible. And I'm committed to teaching through all of the Bible. I'm committed to equipping you to know God's Word. That's my commitment to you. I, I want to be able to say that this fellowship knows all of the parts of the Scriptures, not just the Gospels and a little bit of Romans and a smattering of Psalms and Proverbs, but all of the Bible. I want you to be well-equipped, well-trained in the Word of God so that you know your roots in the Old Testament. And Deuteronomy was one of the books Jesus quoted most from. It's important that we know it. So what a thrill it is to be able to study. And since there's no Sunday night study next week, this study continues Wednesday night. It's a little awkward this first week, getting used to it. But we're going to go tonight and then pick up again Wednesday night at 7 o'clock in the evening. All right, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you this evening. Thank you, Father, for your commitment to us. You're committed to being with your people. Not only that, but you're committed to transforming your people, to transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ, to shape our personalities. Lord, you love us just the way we are, but we know that you love us too much to leave us the way we are. You accept us and we come and then you change us and you make us more like your son. And we give you permission tonight to get inside of our hearts and change the way we think so that we might respond to you with an obedient lifestyle. We come with humility tonight in submission to your word and ask that you teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. And it shall be, when you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance and you possess it and dwell in it, that you shall take some of the first of the produce of the ground which you shall bring from your land that the Lord your God is giving you, and put it in a basket, and go to the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. You shall go to one who is priest in those days and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come to the country which the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. And then the priest shall take the basket out of your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God, and you shall answer and say before the Lord your God, My father was a Syrian, or an Aramean, depending on what translation you sport, about to perish. And he went down to Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, and there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. But the Egyptians mistreated us, afflicted us, and laid hard bondage on us. Then we cried out to the Lord God of our fathers. The Lord heard our voice, looked on our affliction and our labor and our oppression. And so the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, with great terror, with signs and wonders, and brought us to this place and has given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now... Behold, I have brought the first fruits of the land which the Lord, which you, O Lord, have given me. 
You shall set it before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. So you shall, what? Rejoice. I want you to underscore that thought. You shall rejoice in every good thing which the Lord has given to you and your house, you and the Levite and your stranger who is among you. We remember from previous studies that God told them to keep a set of feasts. It's a good term. It's a good word. Not just rituals, not just ceremonies, not just religious functions, but feasts. Keep this feast. And he repeats that. You shall rejoice in the Lord. You shall rejoice in what God has done. You shall rejoice in what God will do for you. I'm convinced that our times of worship ought to be filled with joy. That's one of the reasons our worship group fills the worship song list with some fun songs, rejoicing songs. Our celebrations ought to be celebrations. Our meetings ought to be happy. Our feasts to the Lord should be happy. You know, at Christmas time, you ought to be the happiest group of people around. Isn't Christmas one of the most stressful times around? Isn't it ironic to look on the faces of people who go Christmas shopping at that great time of joy? Go in the mall and, and just study their mugs. And notice the lines of stress, worry, and how they push in line and, I want that gift. And they try to get there before anybody else. Quick, get it before the selfish people get it. And even at Easter, oh, what am I going to wear? And the stress that would accompany some great festivals that ought to be filled with joy. Yesterday we had a great wedding here at the church. It was so joyful. The bride and the groom were filled with joy. The parents filled with joy. And there were tears, but there were tears of joy. Everybody had a great celebration. I had a great time. It, it was fun. And I had people come up to me afterwards, and they are from other states, other places, and they've never seen a wedding, quite a Christian wedding that was so fun. And they said, that's got to be the most fun I've had in a long time. Now, I admit, I've been to some weddings. I've even officiated at some weddings. Where it's hard to tell. It's for a moment you think, is this a wedding or is this a funeral? Am I marrying or am I burying? It's hard to tell. Even by the look on this couple's faces, I'm thinking, are you really ready for this? Yeah. And so you try to bring a little bit of humor into it, and, 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 and they won't do it. You shall rejoice in the Lord your God. We are dealing in these verses with a feast. Now, remember, there were several feasts, and there were three great pilgrim feasts that people around Jerusalem were compelled to attend. There was the Feast of Passover, or Pesach, as the lamb would be slain, and it would symbolize the leaving of Egypt and going away in haste toward a new land. There was the Feast of Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, as it is called, 50 days after that. And then there was the Feast of Sukkot, or Tabernacles, celebrating God's provision in the wilderness. But there was also the Feast of First Fruits. 
And it was usually tied to the time of the Passover and unleavened bread. It was right around the same time period. And it was right after the barley was harvested. And they, they would take the fruits and they would bring it before the Lord symbolically. In other words, instead of keeping the first, sometimes considered the best, for myself, I bring it to the place the Lord chooses, which would be the place of the tabernacle being set up, Shiloh first, then Jerusalem where the temple stood. And they would bring it to the priest and it would be a symbolic offering of, you know, God is going to bless me. He already has. Look at this. And I offer the first and the best before the Lord my God. You are sort of rejoicing in advance for what God is going to bring you. It's an offering of faith. Here's the first, here's the best, but I know that more is yet to come. And so I rejoice that God has provided, and I give it back to the Lord. I get rid of it. It's out of my hands. I deposit it with you, and I rejoice in advance that God is going to bring joy to His people. Now, I don't know what it is. I just felt compelled when I thought of rejoice to, to bring this up. Anyway, let's get into the Bible. Okay. They would come to the tabernacle or to the temple later on. And in this courtyard would be the officiating priests. So going up to the door of the tabernacle, you would bring the offering of the first fruits in a basket. And you'd walk up and it was that time of the year. The priest would be there to receive it. But when you would go up there, you had to recite something. You had to recite a little bit of a, a, a litany that you would memorize. In fact, when we read what it is, what they would do is sort of encapsulize their own history. This is what God has done with us, and I'm a part of that. This is what God has done with me, and I rejoice in that. And they would have to say it publicly and then give their offering to the priest. Later on, what we just read that they had to recite at the tabernacle was included in the Passover. In the Passover Haggadah, the reading at the Passover. These things would be read. This is what God has done throughout my past. They were to bring the first fruits of the land before the Lord. Lord, this is what you've given me. We've just harvested it. And now we give this for your glory, your honor. Well, let's see what happens. It shall be when you come into the land. Not if, when. And we'll get to that in just a minute. I want you just to remember that. When. God promised them that they would get there. Which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. And you possess it. And you dwell in it. Take some of the first of the produce of the ground which you shall bring from your land that the Lord your God is giving you. Put it in a basket. Go to the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide, the tabernacle at Shiloh, and later Jerusalem at the temple. And you shall go to one who is a priest in those days and say to him, now this is the little speech that you have to come up with. Picture yourself there. You got the basket. You walk up in your little robe. And you have to remember this. And it was spoken in Hebrew. I declare to you, or I declare today, to the Lord your God that I have come to the country which the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Okay, now you're in the land. It's not, you know, I hope I get there. I'm here. God made this promise. And so I come in fulfillment of that promise. I'm in the land that God promised. And the priest shall take the basket out of your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. And you shall answer and say before the Lord your God, My father was a Syrian 
about to perish. And he went down to Egypt and sojourned there, or journeyed for a while there. Few in number. And there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. They began retelling the story from the patriarch Jacob's perspective. Jacob was the guy who wandered through Syria to the house of Laban and had several children, out of which came the twelve tribes of Israel. And he was an Aramean. He was a wandering Syrian or wandering Aramean. And God even prospered him there, but later came back into the land, and the twelve tribes under Jacob had to go down to Egypt, seventy in number. But God populated them, made them grow into a large nation. But the Egyptians mistreated us and afflicted us and laid hard bondage on us. Now they're, in a nutshell, in a sentence, recounting the many years of bondage at the hands of the Egyptians. And then we cried out to the Lord our God, and the Lord God of our fathers, the Lord God heard our voice and looked on our affliction and our labor and our oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, with great terror, with signs and wonders." So they were to retell this story. My father was a Syrian about to perish, going down to Egypt. The Egyptians mistreated us. In doing this, they did a couple things. They would remember where they came from, Egypt. And they would share a public testimony. They would be able to, in a nutshell, tell their own person, you know, they made it personal. Instead of, I'm going to tell the old, old story, they put themselves in the middle of the story. This is called giving a testimony. That's essentially what they did. I was in bondage. I was ready to die. My forefathers, I'm linking with them at this point. Were it not for God's mercy and grace, I'd still be there. But here I am in the land. Here's the fruit. Here's the produce. I'm giving it to the Lord as a testimony. Now, you and I ought to be able to share our personal testimony. Each one of you tonight, if you're a believer, has a testimony. God has done something in your life. You ought to be able to know it and to share it. Now, it's an interesting question. It has caused a lot of people to get very nervous. When I'll ask them if they come in, are you a believer? Oh, yes, I'm a Christian. Okay, second question. What is your testimony? Huh? Tell me how you came to personal faith in Jesus Christ. And, and, and they get all nervous at that question. They find it difficult to reduce God to a personal testimony, personal terms. And it could be, perhaps, because God isn't personal to them. There's a generic God thing happening. But I haven't placed myself in the middle of that. I don't have a personal relationship with Him. So when you ask a person, tell me about your journey of faith. How have you come to know Christ personally? I was raised in the church. And you can tell a person who walks with God. They can freely tell. Let me tell you how it happened. I can tell you my testimony. I know how I felt the night I turned on that television station and there was Billy Graham telling me how I could come to faith in Christ. <laughs> and I know how I felt, and I know how I felt after I prayed. And I know what changes happened in my life in the subsequent days, weeks, and months. 
I love personal testimonies. Others, however, when they give their testimony, and this is a good example of one, some, when they give their testimony, spend so much time on the past, the sinful past, rather than what God has done in their past, present, and future. It's like, if it's a half an hour testimony, you know, 29 minutes are about how bad they were. And then, oh yeah, God saved me. What I like about this testimony is the emphasis is on a big God doing big things for a group of slaves who couldn't do anything for themselves. God was magnified in the testimony and man was minified. Some testimonies, man is magnified and God is a footnote. Then there are testimonies that, that are humorous to me because I think that those that give them speak evangelastically. That is, they stretch the truth every time they tell the story. And I've heard some people's testimony for several times and I'm thinking, you know, the fish has grown a little bigger this time. Like the fish stories, I caught one this big and next time, I caught this 40-foot fish and let it go. And especially those whom I know, and they, they may have perhaps, you know, tried marijuana once in their life or twice. And then you listen to their testimony, you know, a couple years down the line, they've told it so many times, yeah, I was a drug dealer, did a couple million dollars a year and this and that trafficking. Thinking, wait a minute, that thing has sure grown a lot. Now, now why do they incorporate those kind of tales? Because of the response that the, they get from the crowd. Wow. And you really were a creep. You really were wicked. And they kind of like, you know, being put up on a, a pedestal, a wicked pedestal, no doubt, but, you know, it's, wow. They get the response. This testimony is very simple. It's very short. This is, we were, we were slaves, we were incapable. God has done great things. God has done great things. And notice how, how God has magnified. Verse 8, the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, an outstretched arm, with great terror, with signs and with wonders, and brought us to this place. He has given us a land flowing with milk and honey. So they had to say this as they would come to the tabernacle. They'd recount their history, and then they would share this little speech, this personal testimony. Now, for those interested, and I guess even for those not interested, because I'm going to share it, uh, I found in the Mishnah, that is the oral law and the writings of the Jews, uh, how this was conducted, this festival of first fruits, as you would go to the temple. Listen to the celebration. This is in the Mishnah. How do they set apart the first fruits, is the question. When a man goes down to his field and sees for the first time a ripe fig or a ripe cluster of grapes or a ripe pomegranate, he binds it round with reed grass and says, Lo! These are the first fruits. Second question, how do they take up the first fruits to Jerusalem? Answer, the men of smaller towns that belong to Ma'amad, that is the local congregation that would go up to Jerusalem, the delegation uh, taking it to the temple, gathered together in the town, spent the night in the open place in the town. Early in the morning, the officer said, Arise, let us go to Zion, to the Lord our God. They that were near to Jerusalem 
brought fresh figs and grapes. They that were afar off brought dried figs and raisins. Before them went oxen, having its horns overlaid with gold and a wreath of olive leaves on its head. The flute was played before them as they would draw nigh to Jerusalem. When they would get close to Jerusalem, they would send messengers before them bedecked with their first fruits. The rulers and the prefects and the treasurers of the temple went forth to meet them. According to the honor due them, they came in and they... uh, Went forth. All the craftsmen in Jerusalem used to rise up before them and greet them, saying, Brethren, men of such and such a place, you are welcome. The flute was played before them until they reached the Temple Mount. So think of how the kids would get into this. The oxen have decorated horns, and they, they would wear the fruits, the kids and the adults would wear the fruits around the necks, kind of in little necklaces, the, the dried figs, and dance around the street. The flutes would be playing. Uh, what a great thing. The kids would grow up thinking, this is awesome. What a fun time. What a great family time and community time we had. I wish that I would have grown up with a positive experience in church. I did not. I grew up in a church that spoke Latin when I would go to it. And I had to sit with the adults. There wasn't a Sunday school program where I could learn on my level and sing songs and clap and draw with crayons and run around. You know, I had to sit with my parents. And I listened to this. It was meaningless to me. I didn't go, wow, that was cool. I'm a kid. So eventually, by the time I was a teenager, I thought, I hate church. And I begged my parents not to make me go with them to church any longer. Whereas I read of this, I think, man, you grow up with that kind of a background. What a blast. These guys had fun. They rejoiced in the Lord. They made a shindig out of it. The flute was played as they reached the Temple Mount. When they reached the Temple Mount, even Agrippa the king would take his basket on his shoulder and enter the temple courts. When they reached the temple courts, the Levites sang the song, I will exalt thee, O Lord, for thou hast raised me up and has not made my enemies to triumph over me. While the basket was yet on his shoulder, a man would recite the passage uh, from the scripture uh, that we just read. And he would say, uh, I was a wandering Assyrian, or my father was a wandering Aramean. And and, uh, then he would reach the basket, give it to the priest, and uh, the ceremonies would continue. So that's from the Mishnah. That's sort of the celebration that would take place during that time. Notice verse 9. He brought us to this place, has given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Look at verse 11. You shall rejoice in every good thing which the Lord your God has given you, and your house, and the Levite, and the stranger uh, who is among you. And then later on, there's again the mention in verse 15 of a land flowing with milk and honey. One of the descriptions of the land of Israel is a land flowing with milk and honey. Is that figurative or is it literal? Well, it's both, figurative and literal. Right there you're looking at fields of poppies and in the background fields of agriculture. Bananas are grown there, pomegranates, figs, grapes. It's a land that flows with productivity. But here the description is a land that flows with milk and honey. What does that mean? Well, it's figurative in the sense of it's productive, but it's also very literal. 
There's an agricultural term, terminology. In the peak time of the spring and the summer when the land is producing the most, there is the time of the flowing of the milk and the time of the flowing of the honey. Because the cattle, the animals, are out there feeding on the fodder, things have grown so much because of the rains, and the bees come in and take the pollen and, and pollinate from the flowers that are there in the fields. And so as you know, the cattle are eating and getting healthy, they call it the flow of milk because of the productivity of the cattle after eating. And because of the bees coming in to pollinate, pollinate they call it the flow of the honey. It is literally the flowing of milk and the flowing of honey because it is so productive in the land of Israel. It is the land flowing with milk and honey. Isn't that beautiful? And these flowers are beautiful. You see them in the springtime of the year. Um, let's apply that for just a minute. God kept telling them as they were going from Egypt through the desert toward Moab, toward Canaan, You've been in Egypt, but I'm taking you across this wilderness to inhabit a land that flows with milk and honey. Productive, abundant, abundant. It takes in the rain from heaven, Deuteronomy 11, 11 tells us. Now, in the Christian life, God has a place of abundance for you. I'm not talking about new cars, big homes, uh, big bucks, necessarily. If God blesses you that way, great. But God has an abundant life for you. Jesus said that in the Gospel of John, comparing what the devil does for you, which isn't much, and what Jesus will do for you. He said the thief comes to rob, to steal, to destroy. But I have come that you might have life, and that you might have it to the full, more abundantly, to the max, to the max. Abundant life. That's what Jesus has for you, a joyful, abundant life, full. By looking at some who say they are believers, you may wonder. If you didn't know any better, you might think, Jesus said, I have come that you might have bummer. <laughs> and have bummer more abundantly. And there are those who have abundant bummer. <laughs> that doesn't mean that you, you paint on a smile all the time. Go praise the Lord. Painted fire never warmed anyone. It has to be real. And sometimes you can have your life falling apart. You can be looking at death in the face or the loss of loved ones and be very broken up and sad. Very, very sad. And at the same time, below the surface, deep inside, there's a sense of abundance and satisfaction. I know God's here. God is sustaining me. God is so good, even though my heart is broken. A land that is flowing with milk and honey. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. If there is a statement that should have made the disciples sort of straighten out their backs, lift up their chins, it was that one. In the midst of a world that is so dull, flat, insipid, you are the salt of the earth. You give it flavor and you create a thirst. Those who cook know what it is to add flavor to a meal. The food has a taste, but you can 
accentuate the taste by adding a little bit of salt. Too much isn't good, but a little bit adds flavor. It accentuates the already present taste. Some of you are fond of a few more spices, and in this state, of course, (laughs) what is food without green chili, right? I mean, how could you live without chili? Somebody said, amen, that's right, preach it. (laughs) A life apart from Jesus Christ is dull, flat, tasteless, and insipid. The proof of that is the pleasure mania that people engage themselves in. Going from one pleasure to another pleasure to give purpose and meaning and some flavor to this boring, dull existence. And so they get it for a while, oh great, and then the spice wears off. And find it somewhere else, the spice wears off. You're the salt of the earth. I have come that you might have this land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 12, when you have finished laying aside all the tithe and the increase of the third year, we've already discussed this, we're not going to belabor the point, which is the year of tithing, you've given it to the Levite, the stranger, fatherless widow, so that they might eat within your gates and be filled. Then you shall say before the Lord your God, and again, here you've got to say something publicly, public kind of a confession and announcement. You say, I have removed the holy tithe from my house. I have also given them to the Levite, stranger, fatherless, widow, according to all your commandments, which you have commanded me, and have not transgressed your commandment, nor have I forgotten them. I have not eaten any of it when in mourning, nor have I removed any of it for any unclean use, or given any of it for the dead. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord my God. I have done according to all that you have commanded me. Look down from your holy habitation, from heaven, bless your people Israel and the land which you have given us, just as you swore to our fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey. This day, the Lord your God commands you to observe these statutes and judgments. Therefore, you shall be careful to observe them with all your heart, with all your soul, Today you have proclaimed the Lord to be your God, that you will walk in his ways, keep his statutes, his commandments, and his judgments, and that you will obey his voice. Verse 16 begins with a phrase that you'd probably just pass over if I didn't draw your attention to it. It's the the phrase, this day. It's used 70 times in the Old Covenant, in the Torah, 70 times. In Hebrew, it's Hayom or Hayom Hazeh, this day. And it is usually used this way. God is telling them what he has revealed to them, what he wants from them, and he calls them to make a commitment or a a response immediately that day. It's not like, hey, you know, dude, think about this. No, this day... This is what I've told you. This day, make a commitment to obey my voice. When you get into the land, you bring your tithes, you bring your first fruits, you recite this. When you get into the land, it's time that you obey me. You realize I'm, I'm God's people. I'm God's child. It's time I start acting like one. How do I act like one? By obeying the Lord, by following him with all of my heart, all of my soul. Verse 18, also today the Lord has proclaimed you as his special people, just as he has promised you that you should keep all his commandments, and that he will set you high above all nations which he has made, 
in praise, in name, in honor, that you may be a holy people to the Lord your God, just as he has spoken. Verse 27 carries the thought, And Moses with the elders of Israel commanded the people, saying, Keep all of the commandments which I command you this day. Seventy times God uses that phrase. Hayom Hazeh. I have given you this day the law. This day recognize it, and this day make a commitment to obey me. Oftentimes, we as New Testament, New Covenant Christians get a little bit sloppy on the issue of the law and obedience. We figure it this way. You know, obedience, that's the law. I'm not under the law. I don't have to keep the law anymore. I'm under the new covenant of God's grace. Well, does that mean you're to be lawless? Romans, Paul asks that question. Because we're not under the law, and because wherever we sin, grace abounds, should we just sin so that we get more grace? God forbid, he says. Though we are under a new covenant, it doesn't mean we're lawless. And the issue of obedience to God is not Old Testament. It is trans-testamental. It spans the Old and the New Covenant. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's New Testament. That's the Savior talking. He didn't say, if you love me, you'll have warm fuzzies and feel sentimental certain times. If you love me, you'll prove your love. You'll demonstrate your love by obedience. Wasn't that really the issue in the heart of James when he said in, in very simple, upfront terms, he said, faith without works is dead. True faith is accompanied by obedience, by works. So, you're God's special people. You are to obey the Lord your God. There was an old song years ago. If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? What if... A crew, a, a TV crew with a minicam came to the church, and spotted you after the service and shined the light on you and said, you're live on television. We're here at the church and we're interviewing so-and-so. Are you a Christian? Oh, yes. How do you know you're a Christian? What would you answer? You might say, well, you know, uh, yeah, um, well, I go to church and, you know, I've always gone to church and I've always sort of believed in God. Or we say... Well, yeah, of course I'm a Christian. I have a bumper sticker on my car, and I got a new Bible. See, it's cool, leather. Look at that. Genuine. Or would you be able to say, yes, I place my faith in Jesus Christ. I believe that His work on the cross has saved me. Besides that, I've seen God change me quite a bit. I've seen the fruit of my own life where I love Him, and I love His Word, and I love His people, and I love to obey Him. Because he said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Webster's Dictionary, if you looked up the term Christian, the definition Merriam-Webster will tell you is, a Christian is someone who professes to believe in Jesus Christ. That's Merriam-Webster. That's not Holy Bible. Holy Bible is a profession and a practice must be together. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. What makes a tennis player? Is it somebody who buys a tennis book and looks at the pictures and underlines in yellow? 
the moves. And if you say, listen, I, I love tennis. Do you really? Do you play? Well, I got this book. Look, look what I've underlined. In fact, listen to this. I've memorized this section. Ready? And they give you a little spiel of it. You say, but do you play tennis? And I know other people who have this book too. And we get together from time to time and we recite these things to each other and show each other the pictures. How's your serve? How's your return, your backhand? Well, I've never actually gotten on the court, but you haven't? Well, then you're not really a tennis player, are you? And so a Christian is more than somebody who buys the book and looks at the maps and underlines the promises and memorizes them to someone who gets on the court of life and obeys Christ. Turn to a scripture before we jump into chapter 27. Luke chapter 6. Let's see if Jesus reinforces this at all. Luke Taking a look at chapter 6 of that book. Okay, you are awake. Verse 43. For a good tree does not bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree is known by its own fruit. Men do not gather figs from thorns, Nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. An evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. Out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you do not do the things which I say? Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who has dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose and the stream beat vehemently against that house, could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like the man who built a house on the earth without a foundation, against which the stream beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and great was the ruin of that house. Very descriptive, is it not? Two people, one who listens and doesn't do anything with it, another who listens and does it. And they're compared to two types of builders, one without a foundation, one with a solid foundation. And when life bears down heavy on that person, especially when judgment comes at the end, they're not standing. One of them is because he has a strong foundation. Strong foundation is he said, Lord, Lord. And Jesus isn't speaking to pagans here. He's speaking to people who say, Lord, Lord, who make the confession that Jesus is Lord. But he talks here about obedience. And so, back to Deuteronomy. That's the underscoring theme. And Moses, verse, 20, uh, verse 1 of chapter 27, with the elders of Israel, commanded the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you today. And it shall be on the day when you cross over the Jordan. And the Jordan was that ancient boundary of the land of Israel. It separated the plains of Moab, present-day Jordan, the land east to the land west, or the west bank is the west bank of this river, the Jordan River. They were to cross over this river. When they crossed over, they would be then in the land of promise that God was giving to them. When you cross over the Jordan to the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess, you shall set up for yourselves large stones 
and whitewash them with lime, and write on them all the words of the law, this law, which you have crossed over, when you have crossed over, that you may enter the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Here it is again, a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord God of your fathers promised you. Therefore it shall be when you have crossed over the Jordan, that on Mount Ebal you shall set up these stones which I command you today. You shall whitewash them with lime. There you shall build an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. You shall not use any iron tool on them. You shall build with whole stones or pure stones the altar of the Lord your God. Offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. You shall offer peace offerings and shall eat there and rejoice before the Lord your God and write very plainly on the stones all the words of this law. And Moses and the priests, Levites, spoke to all of Israel, saying, Take heed and listen, O Israel. This day you have become the people of the Lord your God. Therefore, you shall obey the voice of the Lord your God and observe his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. They were to whitewash stones. Probably what they did, the way I figure it, knowing the layout of the land in the area of the crossing, they would cross just north of the Dead Sea from Jordan into Israel. And and that area is packed full of white gypsum. And you can get a lime wash by taking gypsum and roasting it with a liquid solution, water, some of the salt water from the Dead Sea, and make this gypsum lime whitewash that you would, they probably would coat the stones with. And then they would write on that white face the words of the law. On an altar deep inside the land in the area of Samaria, there were two mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And on Mount Ebal they would put this altar of stones with the law written on it. Now it says you're to write all the words of this law. Now, question. Do you think they wrote the Ten Commandments? Or do you think they wrote the Pentateuch? Maybe all the words of Deuteronomy, this second giving of the law? Or or did they maybe write all of it? We think, you know, I don't think they could write all of the Torah, all of the five books of Moses, Maybe the book of Deuteronomy, but maybe even that's stretching it. Have you ever heard of the Code of Hammurabi? There's a stone they found. It's one stone. I've looked at it. It's not big. little stone made out of diorite, black stone. And the entire Code of Hammurabi, 200 and some paragraphs, over 8,000 words are inscribed on this stone Very plainly, very small, but plainly. And uh, there's quite an introductory and a concluding paragraph, quite lengthy, and it's all in one stone. Well, with 12 stones, using about the font size of the Code of Hammurabi, you could certainly write all of Deuteronomy. And in fact, if you were really diligent and they took it literally, which knowing Judaism they would, could have written all of the Torah very plainly on Mount Ebal on 12 stones, even if they used the same size of the diorite stone that was used in the Code of Hammurabi. That's just an aside, since somebody might say, ah, they probably didn't write at all. I bet they did. We'll get more to uh, 
this area next week, but here is the two mountains with the city of Nablus in between them in modern day. It's Mount Gerizim on the left, Mount Ebal on the right. These mountains become important because Mount Gerizim, a temple, is erected. I'll tell you more about that next week. The Samaritans build it. Jesus has a conversation with the woman about it. But Mount Ebal on the right is where these stones were to be set as a monument of the law once they would cross the river. And then we'll also read in chapter 27 and 28 how people from the six tribes of Israel, the twelve tribes split, six would be on Mount Ebal, six on Mount Gerizim, and one would shout the blessings, the other would shout the cursings, as the Levites would be in the middle. We'll get more of that next week. But I want to conclude with verse 10. It sort of summarizes, does it not, what we've been reading about with obedience? Therefore, you shall obey. And you might just want to put your name in the word you right now. Therefore, Skip shall obey. Therefore, George, Florence, Frank, whatever your name is, shall obey the voice of the Lord your God and observe His commandments and His statutes which I command you today. Let me just close with an illustration that I love from the first time I read it in a book by Juan Carlos Ortiz. Ortiz. I better say that right here or I might get reprimanded. Referring to Jesus' words, when Jesus said to the church, I wish that you were hot or cold because you're lukewarm, I'll spew you out of my mouth. The author says, excuse me for this illustration, but it comes from Jesus himself. What things do we vomit? Things that won't digest. If something is digested, it doesn't come back up. Vomited people are people who refuse to be digested by the Lord Jesus Christ. And digestion means getting lost. You're finished. Your life ends. You are transformed into Jesus. You are unmistakably associated with Him. In Argentina, we have very good steaks. Let's imagine the steak comes to my stomach and the gastric juices come along to dissolve it. They say to the steak, Good evening, how are you? The steak replies, fine, what do you want? They say, we have come to dissolve you. We have come to transform you into this person. Suppose the steak would say, no, no. Now wait a minute. It's enough that he ate me, but to disappear completely? No way. I'm in his stomach, but I want to stay steak. I don't want to lose my individuality. I want to maintain my stake citizenship. So there's a fight. Suppose the stake wins. Very soon, that stake will be vomited out. But if the gastric juices win the fight, the stake loses its personality and becomes me. Before I ate the stake, I was an unknown cow behind the hill. It was an unknown cow behind the hill. Nobody paid any attention to it. But now, because it's dissolved, it gets to write a book. Oh, what a great position to be dissolved into the Lord Jesus Christ, to be a part of the body of Christ. To lose, as it were, a sense of our own, I'm an island, I'm my own. No, listen, just be a part of God's work. Be a part of, a part of the total work of God in the body of Christ. 
lose yourself in him. And it comes as God makes his covenant with us. As he would say, Hayom Hazeh. This day, I call upon you to make this covenant with me. I've given you my word. I've given you my law. You're a special people to me. Now be determined to obey the Lord your God. Let's make that covenant before the Lord right now. Father, we come before you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, whom you sent. The one who is the fulfillment of the law. And Father, we come in his name, hearing the words of the covenant that we have made with you based upon his work on the cross, and being reminded, Lord, of your claim tonight upon our lives, and your desire to take us and transform us, to change us into the personality of Jesus Christ. We freely submit to you tonight, and just as Israel was called upon to make that covenant, we make it with you tonight, as your people, to lose ourself in Christ, to become part of him and part of his plan and part of his work. And Lord, what an adventure that is, what that might mean this week, as we see your plan, your life unfolded in our lives at work this week. Oh God, use us. Lord, I pray that you'd search our hearts in the next few moments. Speak individually to us of what this means to give up that thing or those things we're holding on to, we're not letting go of. That image of ourselves that we are trying to desperately hold on to and portray to those around us, rather than as Jesus making himself of no reputation, pouring himself out to the last drop, and coming in submission to your will. Lord, I pray that that mind would be in us. Oh, God, help us. We are your people. What a, what a lofty position that is. The light of the world, the salt of the earth. Lord, may we live up to that high calling. And Father, we pray for those around us who would answer to the mini-cam reporter, I've always been a Christian, or I own a Bible, I've underlined things in it, but they've stopped short of a full commitment of saving faith, of trusting in you with all of their heart. And I pray, Lord, that tonight, this day, Hayom Hazeh, this day, you would call them into your covenant. Call them into your covenant. Call them into your covenant.